Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. No, the Italians are clearly the most loyal people now. All hail God Emperor Trump. God, if you guys have not seen that picture, it is the funniest thing I have seen in a very, very long time. <laughs> Uh it's so much fun. The Italians are so much fun. We'll, we'll post it on Twitter. Twitter. Oh. What is it that you're talking? It's a there was a parade. Float? So the Italians had some sort of parade that they do every year, and they make like big floats about you know political causes and things that are going on. And one of them was a forty foot tall paper mache float of Trump in like Roman armor with a Twitter sword, and he has, like, demon claws on the other hand, and I don't know if it breathed fire, but it looked it looked like it should. Um, but the Italians are the greatest. I just I just love the Italians. It was very confusing it when I saw the It was very picture. confusing, yes, but hilarious at the same time. We'll definitely post that. Hi, we do a podcast. Uh, this is Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, uh, joined, as always, by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. And we haven't had him in a while. We have our senior legal analyst, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, with us. Hi, Tom. Hello. It's great to be here. There's going to be a fresh breath of libertarian common sense today. <laughs> Thank you, merciful Christ. I've been listening to some previous episodes, and it turns out that... Uh, let me give a quick recap. <laughs> the president uh, is... A lazy sleep till 11, doesn't read, doesn't want to be the president who has goggle uh, spray tan lines on his face. And despite all of that buffoonery, I think you're all sold on the idea that he's a diabolical Russian spy and no one's caught him at that yet. Exactly. Roger Stone is going to bring down the administration, if not all of Western democracy, but he can't find a good suit. And Mueller is going to mop up for him and get anything that's left. Do I have that right? I think that's the previous five episodes. This is this is good stuff, Tom. You're paying attention. I'm too tired to fight both of them all the time. Well, Nick's taking a beating, so I'm going to just throw the following out at you. Uh, I told Bill I was going to say this. Mueller is to indictments what Sammy Sosa is to hits. That is, he has lots of them, but never when they count. (laughs) (laughs) So that's good. Uh, How's that for a start? I like it. This is going to be good. On that note, before we get started, uh, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, beer suggestions, comments, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. We're Barstool Politics. Look for our reviews on there. The podcast itself, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play Music, Stitcher, most major podcasting platforms, review us, share us, like us through those things. Uh, and then Predicted. Uh, we are partnered with Predicted, which is a uh, real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, what's great for our listeners, uh, Barstool Politics listeners who use our promo link uh, when opening up a new account, 
uh, will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. So open up a $20 account. Predictit will match that $20, giving you $40 to use on Predictit. Uh, we use it all the time to kind of take the pulse of current events, see what people are thinking, where they're putting their money, uh, and then trying to profit profit off of it. Yes. <laughs> I have yet to do that. Some people are better at it than I am. Um, either way, definitely check it out. Uh, use our promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 and get your free money. Especially with all the new Democratic candidates jumping into the primary to see like where the markets are for each of them is really interesting. We're, we'll break that down maybe in the next couple of weeks, step back and take a look at all of them. Yes. Um, in the meantime, we have Tom here. So oh, we're going to talk about some Supreme, Supreme Court, Court stuff. All right, Please. guys. It's time to look at the Supreme Court and preview some of the most interesting cases on the docket for this year. Again, lucky for us, we've got our senior legal analyst, emphasis on senior, Professor Tom Gaffin. <laughs> He's in studio with us. Tom, some interesting issues once again before the court. Gerrymandering is back, civil forfeiture, and the legal drawing of blood from the unconscious. Uh, we're going to save the ruling on abortion for later in speed round. But Tom, where should we start and what, what do our listeners need to be looking out for? This has not been a term that has the high profile... Uh, you know, front page New York Times kinds of cases yet. Mm -hmm. um, certainly none of the decisions have been a big deal. You, you all know that Justice Kavanaugh made his first uh, decision and consistent with, uh, with Supreme Court, um, oh, what do we say, tradition, I guess is the best word. It was unanimous on a fairly routine arbitration question. There's an interesting one we'll bring up later relative to a death penalty and a request to have an imam present to do it, but we can talk about that in a context other than this one. And Bill and I have talked a little bit about a Second Amendment case that's coming. Uh, they've taken cert this year, but not coming till next October. That's really interesting and that we should come back to. But three things for today. Why don't we start with partisan gerrymandering? Great. Um, we've talked about this as a group before, so it'll be interesting to hear, uh, as people have had a chance to reflect on it, where they are. This is a case that involves two consolidated lower court cases, one from Maryland. And the interesting thing about these uh, cases is that they, one privileges each uh, party. So uh, the Maryland case is one where Democrats gerrymandered Republicans out of office, and the one from North Carolina is the opposite. So the court has teed itself up to look at what is kind of an objective uh, set of cases. So they're not going to end up punishing one party but not the other in, in, in these uh, cases, it seems like. They lack the procedural quirks that the previous cases that we've talked about had. Uh, my recollection is that when we were here before, we were, I was at least, cheerleading the idea mm -hmm. that maybe the court would do something about partisan gerrymandering, uh, but that the case had some really complicated standing and um, procedural problems, and ultimately they punted because of those. These cases don't have that. They've got a full appellate record below. They're current, so they're not moot. Uh, they have parties that have alleged real injuries, so there is almost undoubtedly standing. Um, there's clear, obvious, unequivocal gerrymandering to knock particular people out of office in each of them uh, on both sides. Um, and each raises the same set of constitutional questions. Two First Amendment dimensions, does this violate rights of association and rights of speech? And does it violate 14th Amendment equal protection uh, that is partisan gerrymandering, does it do that? The big question in front of the court, to boil it down for all you guys, is how much partisanship is too much partisanship? Mm -hmm. uh, I'll just throw one more thing out there that might uh, elicit a little more conversation, and it is that Justice Kennedy uh, was the justice prior to this that was most eager to do something about partisan gerrymandering. Um, 
He was moderate in his approach, so he didn't love to jump in on the first case and change American law. Uh, but he was fairly aggressive about the ugliness of uh, this practice. He's gone, replaced mm -hmm. by Kavanaugh, who is uh, without any record at all on gerrymandering. He's never ruled on it. To the best of everybody's knowledge, he's never talked about it. Um, so best case scenario, he's like Kennedy, at least from my yeah. perspective, he's like Kennedy. Worst case scenario, uh, he sees this as an issue that is not appropriate for judicial intervention. And uh, that's... Uh, territory staked out already by the Chief Justice. So it could be a groundbreaker. It could also be one where five justices say this is a political idea, not a judicial one. We're staying out. So is that teed up for a little yeah. conversation? Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Who wants to, who wants to start? <laughs> well, so, I, I mean, I, I guess I can start with a clarifying question, which is you, you said that it's been challenged on First Amendment and 14th Amendment grounds. Like, so what's yeah. the argument? The, the First Amendment is that um, someone's, well, freedom of assembly and speech is, is right. violated. That right. Somehow the 14th Amendment argument seems stronger to me than the First Amendment, but I'm not a legal person. Do you have a, a stance on like what, like the, the, the argument behind yeah, it? Yeah, it's, that's a terrific question. I think as a general matter, theoretically, the 14th is a stronger argument. The history of the First Amendment for the last 10 years has been, though, that it's a catch-all for every ill in American society. And generally, the court has been very solicitous of First Amendment claims, maybe a little bit more so than they are 14th Amendment claims. So alleging it puts the court in a position where they can say uh, there is an association right. It is diminished if you are cracked and packed, to use that uh, gerrymandering language, in such a way that you can't produce uh, a consensus around a candidate, and where you draw a map to keep people's association from mattering. In fact, one of the uh, phrases I wrote down, just to come back to it, is that the North Carolina judge called uh, this practice noxious and a cancer on democracy. This was, there's was a very strong yeah. feeling about this case. And I think it does come down in some ways to it doesn't make any difference who you associate with if you can be mapped out of effect mm. relative to those associations. Is that so how? Yeah. How is this different? So I'm very sympathetic to this. Like the idea of gerrymandering in general is really troubling to me. So I, I would love to, you know, for there to be some solution. But when I think about this from legal grounds, how is this argument different from a third party candidate arguing essentially that the rules of the game are stacked against them? So a third party, you know, a libertarian who would say mm -hmm. there's two parties. Um, the system is such that a third party can't win. It, it un, you know, unfairly favors the two major parties. How is that not the same argument as essentially the, the rules of the game in North Carolina are such that it unfairly unfairly favors Republicans? Yeah, that's it's a terrific uh, question. It, it seems to me that the argument is a practical one, and that is that in a two-party system, one of them at the end of each census has control of a state house, and they physically, literally, draw the map. Uh, and because there's only two parties at the table, where one of them disenfranchises the other, and uh, Justice Sotomayor has said this reduces the franchise to a charade, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it feels to me like uh, the third party has never had a seat at the table, hasn't lost anything because they didn't hold a seat that was taken away from them, uh, and probably can't gain given that they aren't, at least in the current system, in a position to help draw the maps. Uh, as a practical matter, I think you're exactly right. Drawing maps to make sure you uh, elect Republicans or Democrats makes it equally difficult 
for the opposite and any third party to win. Uh, <clears throat> but I think that's I, I, yeah. that'd be the answer relative mm -hmm. to the third parties for now. They just yeah. don't have a seat at the table, so they don't have standing. I'm trying to gauge how excited I should be because I'll say last year when the court took this up, we had this really great conversation, mm -hmm. and I felt like this was the time the court was going to step in mm -hmm. and give some guidance. And, and you're right, they they punted. Now they brought it back, which is is also exciting. But I'm I'm wondering whether the court, it's so complicated gerrymandering. This is not right. something where they can come give you a point by point, you know, for the state what to do. Mm -hmm. Are they because of that? Are they going to be overly cautious to say that you know we can say this is gerrymandering? Mm -hmm. But we're not going to give you a, a pathway yeah. to fix it. I, I just because mm -hmm. the court, especially like you said, the, the chief justice does not want to be seen as a political actor, and I don't know mm -hmm. how they find that middle ground mm -hmm. between saying this is unconstitutional, but we also don't want to dictate, you know, the, the political map. Yeah, is, is, is as that, to the first ground? question, how excited should you be? Um, I'm excited every time there's the possibility of changing gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it, <laughs> it's one of the three biggest uh, difficulties in American democracy today. It seems to me. So the possibility of changing, it's a big deal. Second, um, while it's impossible to read Supreme Court tea leaves, taking these two uh, cases simultaneously and consolidating them so that both parties have lost, both parties can obviously mm -hmm. on the other side of the equation say they've won, where they take uh, cases that do not have procedural difficulties that puts them in a difficult bind. They can't punt on yeah. this case, it feels like. They're either gonna have to say, this isn't a justiceable issue, we don't decide these things. Politicians can do to each other anything they like, sure. or they're going to have to come up with a standard. Um, to your second uh, point, <coughs> it feels to me like racial gerrymandering is a thing the court has accepted. It has standards for it, at least mm -hmm. generally speaking. Uh, and uh, writing black or Hispanic or Asian, or for that matter, even white voters out of seats is not constitutional. It violates the same three constitutional provisions. So there's both precedent for making a judgment that partisan gerrymandering that has relatively similar consequences is unconstitutional, and for developing some standards to address whether it has happened to a degree mm -hmm. that is inappropriate. Right. So I'm guardedly yeah. excited, yeah. maybe no, is the best way to put it. That makes me feel is better. There, is there room in that, in that for the court to argue that uh, partisan uh, you know, identity, party ID is not a constitutionally or a, it's not a protected class right. the way race is? is Absolutely. That, is there a chance that they use that as an out in some way? Uh, they certainly could. Uh, and I don't want to draw too close a parallel to uh, uh, racial gerrymandering. I guess what I... I want to make the general point that there are forms of gerrymandering the court has accepted, uh, and they have developed tests for deciding when it's done appropriately and when it's done inappropriately. So it won't be their first foray into uh, adjudicating a question like this. But you're exactly right. Uh, political affiliation is not a protected class. Um, I'm thinking, though, that if you can develop metrics for here is a case where racial gerrymandering took seats or fail to produce them where it should, uh, it's important to say that, then it's not impossible to imagine metrics for partisan gerrymandering because that's been the, the twist. We said last time we talked about this, the court generally all agrees that this is really bad business and it's really ugly. What they can't agree on is what's the, what's the standard or what's the test or what's the approach to undoing it? Yeah. So 
what what is your you're, you're hopeful for a decision but do you have a prediction do you have a sense of where you think they will go i think it's not impossible to imagine them going back to the test that was offered in the case last year so was so they was that gotten, wisconsin yeah that was wisconsin right so they've got in front of them i should say they had in front of them a case that offered a test there's no reason why they couldn't go back and say now we have cases that are procedurally appropriate for a decision and looking backwards, we have a test that might make it the case that we could adjudicate them fairly. So going forward, partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional when the number of wasted votes exceeds a certain number uh, and a map has to be redrawn. I'd go on and say the lower courts invalidated all of the maps, I should say both maps, at every point they've had a chance to look at them. So yet another reason why the court might take these two cases is to say, uh, there's a strong procedural history here, and it is entirely uh, balanced against the fairness of these maps. Uh, so, so my excitement is driven a little bit by uh, the cases they took, the posture they've got, and the fact that uh, lower courts have already said these maps sure. cannot pass constitutional muster. Mm -hmm. and, and that's interesting because they don't really have to solve the problem. They just have to say you can't do it this way, right? Try, Try again. again. Yeah. Right. But now the Supreme Court, I think, has to solve the problem to give some I mean, standards that is to it, lower courts. That is, yeah. I think the Supreme Court can't say here we agree. End <laughs> yeah. of story, and not give guidance. Sure. I, that would be worse than punting. Yeah. Because it would tell us that a practice is unconstitutional without telling anybody how to act in a way that is constitutional. And they wouldn't want to wait for additional cases to clarify that, right? I mean, they would want to give some, well, some taking, sense. Taking two more a year after they had one yeah. uh, and taking the kinds that they took this year suggests to me that there are certainly some justices, it could only be four uh, after the cert grant, but there are some justices that feel strongly enough about this that coming right back to it with cases that confront the justices that might not want to hear it, uh, uh, this, this suggests a decision sure. is coming. Now, it might be that the four justices want a final statement that these are not justiciable issues and we're done with this. So, right. so don't let's think that it's, these are cases that are queued up for a concrete decision. It could go either way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They could say, we're not going to deal with it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Ooh, that's and then imagine what democracy looks like. Right, right. That's right. I mean, Illinois is now effectively an entirely democratic state. Wait until we redraw maps if the Supreme Court says partisan gerrymandering mm -hmm. is fine by us. Yeah. I mean, Ugh. It, it, it really, forget your party affiliation. Yeah. The idea that one party could effectively eliminate the other from the mm -hmm. electoral map. And we've got, a, we've got a census coming up yeah. in 2020. I just, it's another thing that looms on the court, and I think a good reason why they might have taken the case. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's civil we could, forfeiture? Yeah, we, gotta, yes. uh, we could spend yeah. all time, but we yeah, should yeah, jump yeah. to that. Yeah. All right, because this is one I think you're all going to yeah. get uh, uh, very excited about. This is policing for profit. Uh, I mean, this is one that I, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm wearing my uh, cards. Or, uh, I've got everything on the table here. Yeah. Um, I, I think we got to change gerrymandering, and I think civil forfeiture is one of the great uglies in America. Here's the case, and here's the question. This is a case from Indiana. The question is simply, does the Eighth Amendment that uh, bar on excessive fines apply to the state uh, or states? Mm -hmm. I guess I should say it that way. Um, the Bill of Rights, I think you all know, has been largely, the word is, incorporated. And what we mean by that is that those protections against the federal government have been extended to citizens as against state governments. So federal government can't deprive you of your right to speech. We've incorporated that right, so state uh, governments can't either. 
the vast majority of uh, the Bill of Rights rights have been incorporated. Oddly enough, here's one that has not. So the court's taking up the hmm. question of, does the Eighth Amendment, as it binds the federal government on excessive fines, apply to the states? And it's a really interesting case. Um, the guy in the middle of it is named Tims. He's, uh, he pleads guilty to drug charges, relatively minor ones, and the police take his $42,000 Land Rover and say that because he used it to transport drugs, it is now the property of the state and that they can liquidate it and keep the money. He wasn't tried. He wasn't convicted. There isn't even concrete positive proof that he used the car to transport drugs. But what the Indiana police say is, we're pretty sure he did, and in a civil context where preponderance of the evidence is the burden of proof one has to meet, we're going to keep that car. Tim's responds, the value of the car is three times more than or almost four times as much as the fines that could have been levied or the fine that could have been levied against him in the criminal proceeding. Which was like ten, eight to $10,000, yeah, right? That's right. the max that they say this... Exactly. This, yeah. Which, incidentally, they could still levy against him, sure. notwithstanding the civil forfeiture. In addition to the car. Wow. These are separate paths, So they could friends. take forty his $42,000 car or Land Rover and another ten grand in right. fines. Ooh. The police need new bulletproof vests. They've got $42,000 to spend on getting them. <laughs> I mean, this is... It's a really... Uh, 50,000 cars were seized and sold by the Chicago police last year. Just mm -hmm. in Chicago. Mm -hmm. This is a multi-million dollar business, and, and what's so troubling about it uh, is that the burden of proof is low. You don't have to be convicted. In fact, you don't even in most states have to be charged. So, so you ask yourself, what stops the police from simply appearing at your front door and saying, we're going to take all that stuff in there because we think you might have engaged in criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. So I'll just throw one case out there to, to illustrate it beyond Tim's, and it's a really good one. Here's a guy that owns a hotel out on the East Coast by Phil. I want to say New Hampshire or somewhere like that. One of these little motor lodges, right? The police show up one day and say, give us the deed. We now own the hotel. So what, you know, what are you talking about? And the answer is, well, we think there were occasions upon which prostitutes um, engaged in illegal behavior here with uh, people paying them. And I says, what? Well, how would I know that? Doesn't matter. So, well, how do you know? We're not sure, but we think. Now we're going to take your hotel. I mean, the, yeah. the, it, it's almost out of Orwell, right? Mm -hmm. That your property is not your property. Well, and states are like this because it's a way of supplementing the revenue, right? I mean, they're they built into God, their budgets. Hundreds of millions of dollars a year yeah. are collected by the 50 states and the federal government. Federal government can do it, but not excessively. Right. Mm -hmm. And you think about, so the states, and so the, the people that they're targeting for this are not going to be, a, in general, a group, you know, we're gonna, oh, that's just criminals that were taking their cars and their vehicles and their, mm -hmm. uh, you know, their hotel mm -hmm. uh, that are going to have a lot of pushback to. I mean, yeah. politically, uh, there's not a lot of pushback. And then economically, it makes a lot of sense for these. But this, oh, this is this I, I teased this one, you remember, the last time I was here by saying that Justice Breyer, who asks in this very exasperated tone after he leads this Indiana lawyer down the path, are you telling me that you could seize and sell uh, and take the proceeds from a person's car for driving five miles an hour over the speed limit. Now he's built the guy into a trap. There's nothing he can say based on his prior answers other than yes. So he does. And, you know, Justice Breyer sits back, smiles, and 
the court clearly is going to incorporate the Eighth Amendment as to the states. The question is, are they going to give them a test for when the hmm. uh, fine or the taking is excessive? Mm-hmm. So, so be, the practice will still be allowed. It's just uh, there'll be limits on how much can be taken. Right, right. The federal government has, I mean, the Eighth Amendment's obviously applied to them since day one, essentially. Um, but they share forfeiture proceeds with the states, even. Uh, so, you know, so the FDA and a local uh, uh, FBI, I'm sorry, um, or even DEA would be a better example. Sure. And a local law enforcement, they grab up a car filled with drugs, they keep the car, they sell it, they split the money, or at least they keep enough, the federal government does, that it doesn't violate their Eighth Amendment excessive fines obligations and give the rest to the state. So everybody's in on it. The, the amount of money that we're talking about, you said 50,000 cars just in Chicago? Yes. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars mm-hmm. that the ripple effect that could be <clears throat> dramatic for, mm-hmm. for states. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that this isn't wrong. I mean, this, this seems excessive. This seems like it should be clear cut. Mm-hmm. But I bet a lot of states are shaking in their boots because of this. Yeah. It, it is hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. a year in revenue. Uh, and, and there are places that are so, uh, boy, what's the right word, overt about it, that police chiefs you know, say things like, go on out and forfeit today, because it's a part of their budget. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine building, LA, the LA Police Department has built into its budget a civil forfeiture line. Yep. Well, just let that sink in for a minute. The police are incentivized to take private property in order to meet mm. their budget. It's, it's, it's astonishing. If people, now, if people wouldn't break the law, they wouldn't have anything to worry that's about. That's a good point. I'm so glad you said that because I want to throw two numbers at you. 4,500 and 300,000. Mm-hmm. Those are respectively the number of federal crimes or crime statutes. There are 4,500 federal criminal statutes. And there are 300,000 regulatory statements that have essentially criminal penalties, all of which all of which 304,500 acts could lead to civil forfeiture, and that's just at the federal level. So you might not even know you've broken the law and find yourself facing civil forfeiture. You pour the wrong chemical down your sink at your restaurant, you violated a regulatory uh, directive, it has a criminal-like penalty to it, maybe you take the restaurant. I mean, I, I don't want yeah. to over-dramatize, but, but there's an, this is a huge industry, is, mm-hmm. and is it's it, really terrifying. So vehicles obviously are a, a major thing. You see this all the time. You go, wherever you live, you see that fancy car that's zooping around, mm-hmm. uh, the cop car. Uh, so you mentioned motels, hotels. Are, are there other things that are being seized? I mean, is, do we have a sense of what Cash. The cash, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, anything of value mm-hmm. is subject to civil forfeiture. Uh, the obvious things are ones that were either bought with the proceeds of the crime, and I hasten to say that this is not true of Tim's. Tim's, it turns out, bought the car with the proceeds from his father's life insurance policy. So there's a sort of a tearjerker angle to the case, right? The, the father dies, yeah. he inherits $70,000, and he spends 42 of it uh, on this new car. Mm-hmm. Or where there was clear evidence that the car or the property was used a yacht sure. or a, a motorboat. Oh, sure, that's got to be a big category as used, well. Used in the commission of a crime. But but neither of those two things are required for civil forfeiture. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking at the Tim's case, and he was charged with selling $260 worth of heroin. 
So, you know, I mean, a, a relatively small amount of money exchanging there with drugs for a $42,000 vehicle being confiscated. It, it just mm -hmm. seems disproportionate. It seems excessive. Mm -hmm. yeah. The interesting thing is that the justices on this, Justice Thomas, has been one of the most vocal relative to the evils of civil forfeiture. Mm -hmm. You start to think a little bit like uh, kind of Alito and Thomas at that far end are law and order sorts, and that's not an unfair characterization. But here, um, Thomas has talked about the well-chronicled uh, excesses of civil forfeiture. So there's almost undoubtedly consensus on the court that the eighth should be incorporated. And I guess I've already said it, but again, like the gerrymandering sure. one, you can agree on the big question, and then it's the implement question. How do you actually do it? I'm thinking of Brown versus right. Board, right? right? We gotta desegregate the schools, so let's get a unanimous opinion on that, and then let's figure out later how we actually do it. Now, I don't think that's gonna happen in either of these no. cases, mm -hmm. but the doing of it is often harder than the saying of it. it. It would be interesting to dive into that data a little bit to see, is there a racial element to this too? Because you, know, you can look at the prisons in African-American population, what dramatically higher are, are certain populations being hit more with civil forfeiture because of this? I mean, I would imagine it's, you could look at it by city and yeah. based on their budgets and shortfalls sure. that they're seeing too. It's, there have to oh. be so many factors and variables that it would not be that difficult to see this trend. This is interesting, oh, this, is, uh, this is fun. So Tim's is gonna win, and, and the big question is, does the court say not only does he win, but we're gonna give a test? Uh, and anybody's guess is, is good on that. That's good. We should jump to Tom. I, I love Tim's, but I'm really excited about this last one as the well. Blood draw. <laughs> yes, right. yes. This is great. Um, the court has, for a couple of years, had to take up questions involving warrantless searches relative to DUIs. Um, and uh, last year, they took up a warrantless breath te uh, breathalyzer test, and they took up the interesting question of: um, Does it violate any constitutional right for a state to have a statute that says if you decline? A breathalyzer test, you are automatically convicted of the crime. Um, the answer uh, to the cases last year was breath tests do not require a warrant, blood tests do. Now, the case this year involves a guy um, who is so inebriated uh, that they get something they call a provisional breathalyzer test. I'm guessing they probably put the breathalyzer near his mouth, um, and he blew a .24, which I'm going to just tell you is, is, is barely above the legal level uh, of death. That's, uh, that's you're, where, you're almost dead at .24. That's where Phil is for podcasting, right? That's where Phil is for, yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason I say I'm thinking they probably held the thing up by his mouth is that then they decide, as they're driving him to the police station, and he becomes totally unconscious, we better get a blood draw. If they had a full breath test, they may not have worried so much about the, the blood draw. I'm thinking that they were worried about whether or not the, the breath test was accurate. Mm -hmm. So they take him to the hospital. At this point, he's completely unconscious so that he can't give consent to give his blood, which the court has said you need to do generally. Um, so they take one anyway and find that he's at 0.22. Uh, so uh, he's metabolized a bit of that liquor, but he's still barely alive, I think is <laughs> probably the best way to think about it. So the argument from the state, and this is uh, a state near and dear to Bill's heart, Wisconsin, yep. uh, is that you've given your implied consent when you drive a car, uh, and you have essentially consented to any sort of search uh, relative to things that might be criminal in your operation of your vehicle. Um, that flies in the face of 
blood tests as very intrusive mm -hmm. and as generally speaking things where a warrant is needed. Um, Justice Sotomayor, you know who I've said is our sort of Fourth Amendment hero at this point, um, she wants warrants even for breath tests. And, and her view is that there's nothing exigent about this. There might be a minimal reduction in your blood level or your blood alcohol level if you have to wait. But it's not like people sober up in the 45 minutes or whatever it would take. She calls it a window of opportunity. Um, so do we take blood from unconscious people <laughs> and use it as evidence against them when we have no warrant? That's the question in front of the court. Oh, is there, is, I would imagine there's some sort of provision for the medical safety of a person who is that inebriated, though. Could they make that argument? He was so, they feared for his life that he would, I, I don't know. I just feel like they're, there's. But it's not for medical reasons, right? No, it's I'm not for, saying it's for yeah, medical reasons. I'm yeah, just saying I could sure. see them making that oh, argument. I see what you're saying, sure. And therefore, since we had the blood, let's right. test it. To me, this idea of implied consent by driving, it's, you know, it, it, that seems problematic to me. That I, just because I've agreed to drive, I haven't implied, I haven't consented to that. Uh, that's, that that's the one that uh, I struggle with a little bit. Yeah, and, and the way the state frames it is that you've given implied consent and you need to withdraw it at the point you're asked by the police, can we take your blood? which is why we're in front of the Supreme Court, because this guy can't withdraw his sure. consent because he's on the cusp of sure. death by alcohol. Oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I don't know. How do we feel about the idea that we're taking uh, arguably the most intrusive kind of evidence, a needle in the arm, uh, to produce evidence without your knowledge, without your consent, and without a warrant? Phil, you want to weigh in this first? Well, I mean, we've talked about similar cases in the past. I mean, this was the an example of, I forget the case, a couple of months ago when we talked with the the uh, the car that was parked near the street or whatever. Oh, the, oh, the, the, the curtilage! The curtilage <laughs> case! <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's an example, again, where I don't... It, the, the taking of someone's blood without their consent for legal purposes, I don't necessarily have a problem with when there's a warrant, right? That's the purpose of a judge is to mm -hmm. make that decision that this is appropriate in these circumstances. And it is an example, again, where it, I, I don't know the whole legal process. I don't know exactly how long that takes, but I don't, like you said, I don't have the sense that it's a two-day process, right? You get a warrant, the, the person's in the hospital, the blood alcohol level might go down some, but, um, you know, ha having said all this, if if it were one of my loved ones that was killed by a drunk driver who was laying there, I might feel differently about whether they should be able to wait an hour to have their blood drawn to find out what their blood alcohol level is. But it, it does seem like the, the, the solution to this problem is built into the system, which is that you have a judge mm -hmm. who makes these decisions, um, and, and that's the purpose of the judge. But and, I don't know. And can do so on a fairly quick basis, right? This is not something where, I mean, within an hour, you could get a judge who would be... And this is Justice Sotomayor's point. Yeah. If, if there were truly exigent circumstances, this stands as a, an exception to the warrant requirement. Mm -hmm. And it has for, boy, I don't know, I, mean, I was going to say uh, years. I, decades would be a better way of putting it. This is not a new rule of evidence, that an exigent circumstance sure. is one that um, avoids the need for a warrant. Uh, her point, and I think lots of people's is, this isn't that. He's unconscious. He's in a police car. It is not difficult to get this warrant. So get it. 
why is it you could have gotten a warrant in the curtilage case too? This is, yeah. and, and in some ways, I think this is not an insignificant point. The police know they can get a warrant, and they make a judgment not to. The curtilage case, they had to sit at the cor- at the curb, they had to look at the motorcycle, and somebody had to say, "I'm not going to bother with that warrant stuff because it's in a carport or something like that." And I guess the reason I think it's significant is this. It suggests that the police want to push the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Not all police ever sure. and that sort of, but, but there are clearly circumstances where the police want to push the boundaries. And I'm, I'm sort of hopeful in a case like this, the court pushes back and says, where you can get a warrant, the Fourth Amendment is clear. Get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could envision and, a circumstance where this, uh, this happens in the middle of nowhere. There's, you know, you're, there's a, not a judge anywhere close by. You know, then I might be more open to this, but I don't know. This one seems pretty clear cut that they've yeah. gone too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what the court's likely to say, hmm. uh, and I wouldn't be surprised to see this uh, come out as a Sotomayor opinion. That's a sort of seven to two, maybe, or or six to three with Alito and Thomas. Thomas, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe Kavanaugh. Uh, he's still a cipher yeah. for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just not enough there. Uh, in, in any sort of big cases to, to draw a beat on him. Sure. Um, but I would guess Thomas and, and Alito would say the harm done by drunk driving is sufficiently great that we can use this implied consent approach to ameliorate it. It strikes me that... So, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I was just going to say that that opens the door to a whole lot more intrusive behavior. If you, if you can say to somebody, you can take their blood, well, there's a whole lot of other things that you could mm-hmm. do that the government would then have a right to do. I, that, that bothers me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what? Sorry, Go let ahead. me just answer that one, Phil, and then yeah. come back to you, because um, there are all sorts of DNA databases mm-hmm. all over the country. And, and I find myself wondering, once you're in possession of a person's blood, it's not just their blood level, or the blood alcohol level you've got. Theoretically, you could put them into a DNA database. Well, now all of a sudden, there's an enormous leap forward in the capacity of police to search, seize, find, look for, uh, people and uh, <clears throat> blood's different than everything else mm-hmm. uh, about a person. It seems to me, it it tells the truth, and and maybe we think that truth is so important that we shouldn't worry about the warrant we need to get it. But in my judgment, the next step is well, once we've got that blood, why wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, Illinois is is announcing that they're going to start using swabs on the side of the street um, to test for alcohol, but. A swab is a thing you can save and use for a DNA test. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've often joked with you guys about I'm going to put my foil hat on now, but it is not a reach to say possessing DNA is an enormously valuable thing for law enforcement. And I don't think any of us is prepared to go down the road that says you can have my DNA without my permission mm-hmm. or without a court right. those issuing two, a warrant. Those two things are different. Yeah. One or the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my question was just a clarifying question about if, if they if they rule that this was inappropriate, the taking of, uh, if that's the way the court comes down, what does that return the, or what does that take the status quo to? Because you were saying that the current assumption is if you're driving a car, there is this implied consent. Uh-huh. And the problem in this case was when he's unconscious, he can't withdraw that consent. Uh-huh. So would it do away with implied consent altogether, or would it just address that mm-hmm. issue of when you're unconscious? So in, the, in other words, does it take us back to a place where by driving my car, I have given consent, you know, implicitly, and so I, unless I say to the police, you can't take my blood, does that does that make sense? I'm, yeah, I, it would be makes complete sense, exactly and the answer is yes. That's essentially, I think, uh, where we'd go. His conviction's thrown out. Uh, 
given the fact that it sounds like there's a problem with the breath test. And the implied consent doctrine uh, survives, at least to the extent that it puts police in a position to say to you, uh, you're driving, you're on 88, step out of the car, uh, we're going to do a field sobriety test with you. If you decline to do that, we're going to ask you to take a breath test. If you decline to do that, we're going to ask you to take a blood test. And now you're in custodial arrest. So nothing stops them from putting you in the police car, driving you and getting a sure. warrant, impounding your car. But, but what's important here is that the implied consent doctrine puts them in a position where they can do all those things, mm. impound the car, take you in, and all that sort of thing. Um, but the warrant, I'm just coming back to this, I don't think it's sophistry to say that the warrant is really important, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, even if the police effectively can take you sure. in and probably get the same things an hour after you said no. They should have to go through that they process. Should, the the yeah. process is important in and of itself, and the warrant is really important yeah. in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is fun. This is fun. We should talk beer. Yes. <laughs> Phil, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I am, uh, tonight I'm drinking a beer from, uh, this is, I'm trying to, Resilience Brewing, which is out of Littleton, New Hampshire, and it's their um, Hop Weave, which is their American Pale Ale. Uh, well, so I guess Re Resilience is a part of Schilling Beer Company. So I guess it's, it's a, they have multiple uh, breweries here. Um, this is I, this is really good. I, I I don't know exactly all the 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 fine details of the differences between IPAs and American pale ales, but um, this is labeled in one place an American ale, and another name place it's labeled an IPA. But I really like the sort of American IPA and the American pale ales. I'm I'm being drawn that way. It's not quite as in your face, um, and I, I'm really enjoying them. This one this one's good. I I, I liked this one. That's good. Tom, you want to tell us? So Tom brought all the beer today. So you want to tell us what we're, what we're enjoying? We have two, and I'll talk about yeah. the first while they drink the second yeah. because they're going to love this one. Uh, first is from my friends at Tapestry Brewing. That's in Bridgman, Michigan. Uh, Tapestry uh, Pex Porter is the name of it. Uh, Bill's going to have some fun with that shortly as we talk about uh, uh, another pecker. <laughs> uh, this is uh, an English robust porter. It's a roasty, heavy... Uh, or relatively heavy beer, lots of flavor. It's yeah. a Great American Beer Fest bronze medal winner, so uh, the world likes it, which yeah. means I think we should all say we like it, <laughs> or we are in the uh, you know we're the outliers here. I think it's a really good beer. Mm -hmm. It was it was crisp. It was you know when you poured it, it looks it has that motor oil look to it, but it was not that heavy. I mean, I, I really like. No, that. it had a nice bite to it. It yeah. had that kind of nice roasty yes. aftertaste to it. Um, but yeah, it was not overpowering by any means, and it it was not. You know, it was not motor oil. Well, we've had <laughs> some that like kind of coat your mouth, and that that could be good. But this was not one of those, right? Mm -hmm. It was just like yeah. a nice, very yeah. I like that a lot. That's mm -hmm. a special beer. I just had like flashbacks when he mentioned Great American Beer Fest. <laughs> the worst hangover of my life came the day after going to the Great American Beer Fest with Bill when we were in college. That was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> There's more to that story, but we can't get into that on air. <laughs> uh, second, Ooh. Big Rip from a Transient Artisan Ales, which is directly across the street from Tapestry and Bridgman. Um, this guy has a well-earned reputation as a pro's pro in brewing. Um, uh, listeners can't see it, obviously, but this doesn't look like an India Pale Ale. No. It's, it's light in color. It's a little bit hazy. Um, it's like a shandy almost. It's, yeah, it's yeah. absolutely delicious. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit like the New England style, though he doesn't, uh, doesn't call it that. 
little fruity. Um, yeah, definitely it's, some it's fruit. Really, really, good. really juicy, which mm-hmm. is great, mm-hmm. but not overpowering by any mm-hmm. means. Not heavy at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. Yeah, this is. Uh, that's a really, really good, it's a really one. good, yeah. beer. like a delicate beer. Yeah, yeah. really yeah. good beer. He's oh, really, really good. Um, yeah, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, download Untapped on iOS or Android. We are Barstool Politics on there, so you can see all the beers that we try uh, along with our reviews. Um, so do that. Let's do that. Speed round. Yep. So now that we've had a Peck beer, let's talk about Pecker. So <laughs> the richest man on earth has accused the nation's leading supermarket tabloid publisher of extortion and blackmail. Oh, so this, two tabloid publishers. This story has it all. International intrigue, White House politics, nude photos, and sexy text messages. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon and the owner of the Washington Post, made his accusations against American Media Inc., the company behind the National Enquirer. Bezos claims uh, claims American media threatened to punish uh, him with intimate photos, photos unless he stopped investigating how the tabloid obtained his private exchanges with his mistress. Interestingly, federal prosecutors in New York are now looking into whether AMI violated their own cooperation agreement in handling the story. Phil, if you told me once, you've told me a gazillion times, uh, below the belt selfies are a bad idea, and they're a really bad idea if you're a billionaire. So, I, I feel illusions to the Great American Beer Fest are coming here. <laughs> so this this I, I I love this story because it's so bizarre and there's so many angles to it. What, what's your what do you make of it? Uh, I mean, there's lots of ways to to go with this. I, the the I mean, from for what from all that we know from other stories, this is a not uncommon practice for American media to for for the National Enquirer to engage in this. Uh, uh, in, anyway, um, it it just seems poorly calculated on their part to go after Jeff uh, Bezos, the man who has. I mean, he in some ways has a lot to lose, but he could lose a lot and still have a lot. Yes. <laughs> he's you know he's he's gonna be okay. And so um, yeah, his response was a little. Uh, I don't know. It was a little surprising to me, but it was kind of, you know, it was gutsy to come out and just to publish the, to publish the story in response to the threats, including the emails, copies of the emails with the unredacted email addresses yeah. of the people at American Media who did all of this. Um, I think there's a lot behind this story. I, I, I think I don't I mean, we'll see what comes out of it. But I think this has the potential to be a really big story, like all the stuff that we've talked about with um you know collusion and russia and all this other stuff i there this i i don't know that this has anything to do necessarily with trump directly but the ties to trump that pecker has are you know well established but the stuff with saudi arabia yeah. and and uh, ties to kushner um i you know i don't know this is a very early story <laughs> but it, it will be interesting to see over the coming months what comes out of this i, I think it has the potential to be a, a major scandal sure. i feel a special prosecutor is in order <laughs> <laughs> If Mueller wraps up, he can jump to this one. Yeah, uh, you can't uh, have peace in legislation right. if you've got war and investigation. investigation. Right. Oh, Nick, what are you? What are your reactions uh, to all of this? I, I mean, I, I agree with with Phil in in a lot of ways. I think this could potentially have some legs. Having said that, I think this could also be a deflection for his own personal issues that he's having right now for, with his divorce. Yeah, yeah, uh, and trying to save his own legal ass. Um, and he's been known to be kind of a shithead when it comes to um you know in, in terms of um uh legal challenges whether we're talking about personally or to amazon he doesn't really take things lying down sometimes when he should take things lying down um i i don't know i i 
like I said, I think there could be a there's potential to it, but I don't know. He's just an asshole, and I really I, I just I don't like him. I, I, I agree with that. I, I think he's played this fairly well. Now he's got the the financial means to do that, uh, but I don't think he's a particularly good t- uh, guy. Tom, mm-hmm. what's, what are your what do you make of all of this? I have not followed this story yeah. closely. <laughs> that never stops uh, us. There's, there's, right, there's no one in it I like, mm-hmm. care about, or... Uh, I, God bless you, Tom. It, is it extortion and blackmail? Um, how about I throw out uh, an easy idea or an interesting idea? I'm not uh, of the view that extortion and blackmail should be illegal. Mm. And uh, for precisely the reason they're coming uh, up in this case. AMI's defense is this was an arm's-length transaction between two people that involve things of value to both, and that is a perfectly legal transaction. Now, it turns out blackmail and extortion are the exchange of a thing of value uh, to prevent you from being embarrassed by somebody. Um, I don't know. I'm sure I'm the only one in the room that thinks blackmail and extortion <laughs> yeah. aren't probably things that ought to be illegal. And I'll just to, put I'd that to, on the I'd table. Think no. more about that. <laughs> you got to think about that? <laughs> yes. Well, listen, Jeff Bezos finished 2018 worth $168 billion. I don't know what the National Enquirer is worth, but it's worth something. These are rich people engaged in an arm's length transaction uh, involving information that, regrettably, I guess the public might like to see. I'm not sure I see what the crime would be. Let's assume it is blackmail and extortion for the moment. I'm not sure I see why this is wrong. So one other angle that I wanted <laughs> that is not I know that's not where you thought I'd go. No, no. But so I, I just want to put that in front of you for a minute here. I'll have to think I, more about that. I don't one. care if Jeff Bezos, you know, has pictures published of him or publishes them himself. Mm-hmm. An, an interesting question is, why is it illegal uh, if AMI actually did do all of mm-hmm. what he alleges they did? Mm-hmm. That's what interests me about yeah. the story. Yeah. Well, I think I, I I I mean I understand what you're saying. But if you took, if you put people who were more sympathetic in this situation, right, like or, or of less let's means, say, let's say that I knew, let's say I saw that, uh, what's Pecker's first name? David, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes by Pecker. Yeah, Pecker. Of okay, so if, <laughs> let's say I saw him, you know, murder a Third nun on jump. the streets, right, and then he tells to me, if you go to the police, I'm going to release all this damaging information about you. Um, that, I mean it's an exchange right i'm going to keep quiet in exchange for this thing of value that he has but that that seems more problematic in that case right because see, it feels to me like the last time we had a conversation like this you <laughs> killed somebody and yeah. uh, am i right about this mm-hmm. that that was phil killing bill and somehow i was making it okay for him <laughs> yeah. to do that I, <laughs> yes the killing of the nun changes things that's different than pictures of compromising material that bezos took himself mm-hmm. and put into uh, uh, the hands of third parties, if no one else, is cloud storage uh, area. Yeah. I, I don't want to push too far on the blackmail versus extortion, but <clears> I had a hard time getting yeah. excited about uh, the, the brawl between these well, people. I think the thing that makes this problematic in this case is that part of what is causing the controversy is that Jeff Bezos is wanting to know how the hell did you get your hands on exactly. these photos? Yeah. And there's potential Ill- illegality. Mm-hmm behind how those photos were obtained and so mm-hmm. the the story is that as his investigator has gotten closer to unveiling the potential illegality of how these photos were were um, obtained that's when the they come forth and say back off or we're going to publish these mm-hmm. pictures yeah. mm-hmm. and so in that and yeah i mean it's it, it, anyway i'm i'm yeah. more sympathetic to bezos <laughs> I, I don't again i don't think he's a great person or anything but i'm sympathetic to that to that aspect of it mm-hmm. all right let's... but, but uh, well maybe i'll try one more thing just real yeah fast. sure mm-hmm. 
we've produced this culture where digging into people's lives in ways that are meant to ruin them is par for the course. And I don't know about all of you. I, I think I heard Nick in one of the previous episodes use a phrase I've used in class, and that's we're eating ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and this feels like more of the same. I mean, the Amer- uh, uh, National Choir has been doing this for years. Yeah. Uh, but now we're, we're mainstreaming this. And, and this could, who knows, this could have been somebody other than the National Enquirer that saw this as real journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess I have to say, I'm, I'm really worried about where we're headed as a culture when we have made you know, high school yearbooks and uh, when we get to the, mm-hmm. uh, the business of uh, confirmations, I want to talk about Natalie Rao, who's mm-hmm. uh, up to replace Kavanaugh, who's now apologizing for things she wrote in college, for yeah. goodness mm-hmm. sakes. Mm-hmm. Um, this feels to me like more of that. And, and if Bezos wins in a way that, that starts to curb the excesses of ruining people's lives based on their private behavior, I'm all for that. Well, it, it's, we need to move on. But like, was it Hulk Hogan? I mean, there were similar. Not, was it Hulk Hogan? Where yeah. There was, yeah, yeah, with Gawker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's same, same dynamic there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, let's, let's move on. So, all right, Democrats found themselves on the defensive again this week. Representative uh, Ilhan Omar, who had been accused of sending anti-Semitic tweets, apologized on Monday for insinuating that American support for Israel is fueled by money from pro-Israeli lobbying, uh, pro-Israeli lobbying groups. Democratic leaders offered a swift and unqualified condemnation of her tweets, the mea culpa by Ms. Omaro, a freshman lawmaker from Minnesota and one of the two, first two Muslim women elected to Congress, came a day after a day of bipartisan outrage over her tweet Sunday night, asserting that support for Israel was, quote, all about the Benjamins baby. Uh, this is such a complex and fascinating issue. Uh, Phil <clears throat> APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, and U.S. foreign policy towards Israel is a contentious issue among political scientists. We talk about this all the time. And this adds another wrinkle to the debate. What, what's your reaction? Where, where should we go? Also, do you think it would have been a better joke if she had said it was all about the Netanyahu's baby? I personally think it <laughs> yeah, would have been. I, I thought about that, too. Yeah. That's, that's smart, Nick. I know, right? <laughs> Uh, uh, comment. Th- this is, yes. uh, I, I don't. I go back and forth <clears> on this. <throat> this is uh, this is a hard issue for me. Um, I, I mean, this is you know you you mentioned the foreign policy in, in yeah. my U.S. foreign policy class, and I think you do too. I use the Israel lobby article, yeah. um, which is this very prominent article that was written probably 15 years ago, maybe longer, um, by Stephen Waltz and uh, John Mearsheimer, uh, yeah. two preeminent scholars in the field of international relations. Who are basically critical of the power of the of APAC and other groups within this Israel lobby? That that basically they had a disproportionate influence on U.S. foreign policy, that led U.S. the U.S. down these roads towards support of Israel in a way that wasn't actually beneficial to the United States. And they were widely criticized of being anti-Semitic. They couldn't get this published in major article, uh, major journals. Um, and it's a discussion I have with my students every every year. And so I come back to this and kind of think about this every year. And I, on one hand, I want to think that looking at the influence of, uh, you know, of a particular of, a, of an act of APAC, if they have, you know, a, if they're a powerful lobby group that actually sways policy, that's something that we should be able to talk about. The fact that essentially almost every uh, every person in the in uh, in my students when i have when i have jewish students in class when i look at uh, commentators online people who are jewish they almost universally see this as anti-semitic and that makes me think mm-hmm. they that i have i need to i need to figure out why you know there's um it doesn't necessarily jump out to 
as that to me at first, but it makes me think if that is how it's perceived, then there's something to that, right? And it does line up, right? This the old the old old trope is that there is this secret, you know, cabal of Jews somewhere with all the money who are pulling the strings behind the scene. And everything Isolate about that. that. Yeah. Yeah. That um or <laughs> that, that sound right? clip I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Don't take that quote out of context. Yeah. Um but every element of that is here in the, yeah. in these sorts of arguments, and so I, I'm really torn because I, I do feel like we should be we should talk about you know the the influence of money and whatnot. But but uh, yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know how you walk that line. There's a real distinction between being critical of Israel, an important distinction between being critical of Israel and also being anti-Semitic, and mm-hmm. that line isn't always easy to find. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's it's an interesting thing, like and and when you talk about your your students and their reaction to it. <clears throat> you it, it that seems to be an echo that you hear a, a lot more especially in younger generations now um i don't necessarily agree with that i i don't agree with her statement necessarily but i understand the reasoning behind it and it's this element of catastrophizing or you know this element of of conspiratorial thinking that gets us into these things where everything is either racist or anti-semitic or misogynistic or, or, or something. It's something other than someone just making an offhand comment that nece- didn't necessarily mean anything. Um, I just don't think she's 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 a fresh she's she's a freshman. Yeah. I, I don't think she's aware of how precarious her position is at the moment and needs to learn to play the game a little bit better. Realistically, she probably does have some of these uh, these viewpoints and does view uh, Israel and and Jews in a, in a certain light, but I don't necessarily see this particular statement coming from a severely anti-Semitic point of view. My issue with this whole thing is that this is a large lobbying contingent, uh, which is the bigger problem in Washington than any specific um, religious or ethnic group. Lobbying is the issue, whether you're talking about Israel or tech or agriculture or uh, weapons manufacturing, anything. That is the real issue, not this garbage that, you know, takes our attention off the real issues. And what's fascinating about that, I think you're spot on with that, Nick, uh, is that the role, so when you think about APAC, APAC isn't necessarily funded by American Jews. It's it's American evangelicals are one of the big right. supporters mm-hmm. that are driving right. APAC. It's this really interesting Know, combination where it, yeah it, it, absolutely that's that's a different conversation than talking about whether something is anti-semitic tom you had a really you were going to talk about a case that i think is really fascinating that relates to this yeah but before i do that i guess i'd say this i, I want to hear as much from politicians as they want to tell me and i think that helps us make judgments about their capacity to do their job and the more we shame people into inauthentic towing the line I think the less likely it is that we're going to know who it is that really represents us. So I, I'm, a, I'm a free speech absolutist. I think there are very few things outside the lines. And whether this is anti-Semitic or not really doesn't matter to me as much as do we really want to start down a road where politicians have to, uh, maybe we're already so far down it we can't get back, parse every word they say. Uh, I'd, I'd like more authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an interesting case that raises religion as well. Uh, that the Supreme Court uh, sort of handled this week. And it was an execution in Alabama uh, where the uh, condemned asked to have an imam present for his execution, which did not comport with Alabama law. Uh, The law was that uh, a prison employee 
had to be the one there. The only one who was a prison employee was a Christian chaplain, so they told him no. Uh, and uh, oddly enough, the Supreme Court went along um, taking the position that this is an establishment problem, establishment clause problem. And, and I guess I'm just thinking, we've, we've made so many areas of American life fraught, and here's another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine uh, how the court, for that matter, how Alabama couldn't figure out a way to deputize an imam. Uh, forget whether you sympathize with this, this sure. guy going. He's a terrible guy. But this is not how we behave. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Here we are again talking about conflict about religion, and I have to tell you, this one really surprised me. And there was some very strong feeling on the court uh, about the five who said, go ahead with the execution without the imam there. They were the ones who took kind of a strict constructionist view, right? The law says a particular thing. Alabama's just doing what it has always said it would do. And now this is fine. Uh, yeah. I don't think it is. I could, I, could see, I could see that decision going to sort of either of the other extremes, which is to say that mm-hmm. whatever your clergy of preference is, you know, whatever, whoever it is, your religion of preference, they can be there with you. Or mm-hmm. to say, you know, you can meet with, a, with a, a holy person before the execution, but when it comes time to execute someone, they're not in the room with you. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's, that's when it happens. And so either anybody or nobody, but yeah. it is I, mm-hmm. it's I a weird exactly thing to say yeah. that this, right. this right. one type of person gets to have mm-hmm. their, you know, their religion there. We should have denominational neutrality. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, uh, you're totally right. All or none. Yeah. Uh, which is the best way to think about it. What was the reaction to that court case? Because I think it caught people off guard a bit, uh, or that decision, I, I, I think it say. did, too. And uh, it caught me off yeah. guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you're a strict constructionist, I can't imagine why you wouldn't say laws that run afoul of the Establishment Clause, mm-hmm. which is the thing we're strictly construing yeah. here, not necessarily the Alabama law, um, it doesn't matter if we wait a month to execute this guy. I mean, I, I say yeah. this as somebody who's not family of the victim or something like that, but it is not like this crime happened yesterday. And giving Alabama a chance to rewrite its law, give this person the sort of death that I think, yeah. if you're a supporter of the death penalty, I'm not, but if you are, that it seems to me comports with the way human beings think yeah. about these sorts of things should be important. And I realize that's not... Um, I don't want to you no, know, no, I think, no. draw too strong a parallel here, but I guess I just want to say here's another area of American life that we're really struggling yeah. to sort out mm-hmm. and uh, str- struggling to sort out the Christian West yeah. with other traditions that we have not previously accommodated in these sorts of settings. Mm-hmm. I think it connects to, so for the last two weeks, so Nick has, has defended Democrats the last two weeks, so you were talking about Northam last week and saying that we shouldn't get as... Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think there is there is some truth to that, and I think the Democrats are struggling... Say, what the fuck are you <laughs> yes, talking He looked very offended sure. for a minute yes. when he said he was defending Democrats. You know, Democrats yeah, are I don't to... think that's what he did. No. I, I, mean, I, I think I did for a second. Bring this full no, circle. No, no, but I, you, I no. thought he had an epithet for all of you. Yeah. The idea that a pox on all your houses. Ooh, so, uh, it's yeah. otherwise been said. Yeah. But so, so Democrats are struggling with this sense of, of identity and how to respond. So last week it was it was racism within the Democratic Party. This week it's anti-Semitism, potential anti-Semitism within the Democratic Party. And how do you handle that in a measured way? Because uh, I think Omar also, she clearly has faced... Uh, prejudice against her own, you know, a ton. Yeah, yeah. And she's so, had all sorts of racism leveled against her, right? And I will say her po- apology was was also revealing. I mean, she basically said, "I unequivocally apologize for this," but then also said, "Like we have to have real conversations about the role of interest groups." And 
I don't know. It's 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 revealing to where the Democratic Party is. So if we shame people out of those conversations yeah. and we're doing it with race every yeah. day, we get no better. Yep. No, and I and that's the thing. I feel like it's harder to have a real <coughs> conversation about the role of the United States and Israel right now uh, because of fear mm-hmm. of this. And that's a conversation that needs to happen, right? Yeah. Is is the relationship between the United States and Israel really in the U.S. interest? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But we shouldn't be worried about, to go back to Walton Mearsheimer in international relations, whether claims of anti-Semitism are going to curb that conversation. Well, I mean, kind of going along with what Tom was saying, nobody changes their opinion in 24 hours either. Like, you can talk about yeah. <clears throat> how contrite you are immediately after these these incidents occur, I don't believe for a second that any of these people actually change their minds. And frankly, I know that they're lying at that point, and it's getting us even farther away from honest discussions and an honest understanding of who our representatives are. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a good point. I, I will say right. her apology <clears throat> touched me, Nick. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> because it did seem like, at least sweet, the words sweet, that she's though. using was saying, like, <laughs> I, I now get this. I understand the way... I've been judged. I understand why how Jews can have been judged. So I'm not so sure it was the typical cynicism of a politician that apology. I, I, when I, you're I, that but, angry about something, how often do you change your opinion that quickly? Oh, me zeros. And, and yeah. about that, now I now understand. Regardless of what you think, and you like you specifically said, she's faced her own yeah. issues of of uh, of why can't I think of the word now? Um, um, Islamophobia. Sure. Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, I, and I, I, to, to think that you unequivocally uh, change your opinion about this, about something that is so that is so inherent to a lot of people, that just screams of just dishonesty to me. And I, like I, and, and, and everybody is caught up in it now because you have to, otherwise your career is over. But it's not, it's not who these people are, and it's not who a representative should be. If they're those types of people, like Tom said, I, I want to know about it. And if they're up to handling the job, I don't think a lot of them aren't. Let's hope the Democrats can get through well, a week without another no. scandal. <laughs> to, to the point that, that opinions don't change overnight and why these conversations are important, as you were talking, I was thinking about, I do use that Walton Mearsheimer article in my class, and I use it every year for a decade now. And my, my opinion has about the article and the arguments it makes has shifted not dramatically but it shifted over the years and mm-hmm. it's but that's because every year i go back and reread it mm-hmm. and every year i have this conversation with students and mm-hmm. we discuss it and and that's that's how that sort of change occurs right is through engagement with the ideas and the arguments and the the points and the counterpoints and and wrestling with it I feel like I learn from this podcast every week. This is good. <laughs> Matt, the instinct is always to go to the accusation mm-hmm. rather than uh, the idea. Yeah. Boy, the lobbyist dimension, I'm with Phil on this. The lobbying this is a big deal, and we should be talking about it. But we're yeah. not. Nope. We're, we're, we're talking about anti-Semitism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and whether that's true or, uh, of her or not, in, in my judgment, is far less important than mm-hmm. uh, the conversation we could be having about the point she's making. Yeah. And they're both conversations we should be having. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we should be talking right. about anti-Semitism right. and the right. history of this and yeah. why why Jews mm-hmm. view this as anti-Semitic and problematic. Mm-hmm. And we should also have the conversations about U.S. policy towards mm-hmm. Israel, yeah. but it's this one where we use one conversation to shut down the other. And right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's well said. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's move on because we got to talk about Senate confirmation. 
Lots of losers. All right, more than two years in, there are a lot of vacancies in the Trump administration. For instance, the president has an acting chief of staff, attorney general, defense secretary, office of management and budget, budget director of environmental protect, and the Environmental Protection Agency. To deal with the number of vacancies in the upper ranks of the department, agencies have been relying on acting officials to fill the roles. Yet this practice raises important legal questions. Uh, for comparison, only 54% of Trump's civilian executive branch nominations have been confirmed, compared with 77% under President Barack Obama at the same point in his administration. Republicans have blamed Democrats for the delay, yet the White House has not bothered to nominate people for 150 out of 705 Senate-confirmed positions. And it appears that Trump himself actually prefers to have acting officials. In an interview with CBS, he stated, it's easier to make moves when they're acting. It gives me more flexibility. Uh, there's a whole lot here. Tom, you mentioned that you were troubled by this situation. Why don't you start the conversation off? This is the government shutdown everybody should care about. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so while there was all the angst uh, about a month without non-essential government workers, these are essential government offices, whether judicial or um, executive, that we can't fill because there's a concerted effort not even to try. Uh, uh, this one really, really, to use a word I hear a lot among this podcast group, is problematic to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, we've we've reached a point where people can, and Chuck Schumer does this with some regularity, say with a straight face, I don't know who the nominee is yet, but I'm opposing them. And, and I think, again, we should, this, this is just unimaginable that, forget the numbers, I, I don't even want to try and figure out whether Obama versus Trump got more in or not. The idea that any president, duly elected, can't send to the Senate nominees and get votes, this is, this is problematic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it is a genuine government shutdown because those of us who depend on these offices, those of us who depend on judges to have judicial nominations for vacancies that are months and months and months old, yeah. uh, this is crazy. The EEOC has had a nominee for 18 months who's not yet been heard. And those who are hurt are put in a position where, I, I said I'd mention uh, Rao, where she's apologizing for things she wrote uh, decades ago. Now, I don't know, I, maybe you three never wrote anything in college that was provocative and uh, contrarian and, and that, I did. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> now, I, I wouldn't apologize for eight seconds mm -hmm. about them, but I, I don't know, maybe if, uh, I don't know, maybe if I was a, going to be on the federal bench, I would. I, sure. I, I hope to God I wouldn't. Yeah. I hope what I'd say is this. My thought evolves. If yours doesn't, the problem here is you, mm -hmm. not me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, Chuck, if you're opposed to me before you've ever read my name, again, mm -hmm. the problem here isn't me, it's you. Mm -hmm. well, this, I mean, this is a part, of, a, a, a part of the bigger picture of partisanship that we've complained about on yeah. here. Um, a, a lot, right? I mean, this is this is something that's happening now. It's something that happened under the Obama administration. It's become this delay game, uh -huh. where especially with judges, right, where you just hold off in the hopes that you'll have a different administration eventually that can that can yeah, fill those yeah. those those roles. Um, yeah, and it's one of those that when it's your team doing the delaying, it's easy to get behind it, right? But this is where you start to see the problems where <laughs> yeah. uh, it, when it becomes a tactic for every side. Yeah, the idea that a person who's nominated for a position should at least get a hearing seems yeah. pretty straightforward and fair to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think? So I, I, I have so many thoughts on this because it, it, to me what bothers me is all the acting guys. And I, I think of 
Whitaker last week as the acting attorney general, and you know he strikes me as somebody who shouldn't be in that office. Uh, you know, I, I just there, I don't know. He just doesn't feel like that's. It, it bothers me if somebody like that is in that acting position. And it's problematic. <laughs> exactly. It's a good word. <laughs> um, and so, and I think there is a real role for oversight and confirmation to determine whether yeah. these are quality people or not. But you need quality people on the other end of that spectrum, well, right? To make that that assessment. And I think you're 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 spot on to say that this is driven by partisanship, so that not, that process isn't taking place. Where Trump has been fairly successful, though, is getting a lot of judicial nominees. Not all of them, but a lot of them through. Mitch McConnell has been successful. Yes, well, that's true, right. So what do you make of, so the ABA does these unqualified, and I don't know what to make of it, because they keep talking, every once in a while, every couple of weeks you see a story about another judge that or it's getting through with an unqualified rating. Should that bother us? Um, you know, how much should we put in this ABA? The rulings, are, are good judges getting on? And that's, that's what troubles me. ABA is the American Bar Association. Sorry, yes, yeah. yeah. Which is... A political group. Okay. Uh, they have a position like everybody else, and um, I think they do a reasonably good job of separating politics from evaluation, but uh, I'm not ready to say that the ABA, uh, George Bush said long ago he wasn't going to pay attention to the ABA. Uh, they lean left, mm -hmm. and they clearly privilege judges that are aligned with their way of thinking. Um, but let's let's assume that's not true. Sure. It seems to me the president, not the ABA, is the one charged with nominating judges to sit on the federal bench and make judgments about federal cases. I argue to my classes, talking about classes, all, this is the single most important thing the president does. And I don't think second place is close. Now, we've, we've made the president the guy that declares war anymore instead of Congress, but the president should have the right to do this and get a hearing. You vote cloture and somebody gets 30 hours of debate. Mm. I mean, which is to think about hundreds and hundreds of nominees, and we're forcing ourselves to do 30 hours of mm -hmm. debate in order just to reach a vote. So the interesting question, coming back to Nick not supporting yeah. uh, Democrats, was, I think you said something to the effect of, you people made your bed about uh, Virginia and all of that, Pretty now you much. can sleep yeah. in it. Mm -hmm. Well, Harry Reid made a bed about uh, nominations to the court. Mm -hmm. And uh, now the Republicans might do the same thing. If you change the rules on cloture and make it two hours of debate, they're going to pound those things through. And so the question is, are they going to come to regret later, if they do oh, that, sure. that they did? I suspect that McConnell is not going to change that rule. Yeah. But, but the idea that we can't in good faith confirm people uh, to do jobs we need done is another symptom of a, a, a really sick democracy. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I also agree with what you're saying, Bill, about having all these people in positions that are supposed to be confirmed positions in which they're not going through the confirmation process. Yeah, now, correct. that yeah. relies on people doing the confirmation part of the process. But mm -hmm. um, I, I saw an interesting, I realize the time has gone off, the bell has rung, but I, I saw an interesting article this week, I don't remember where I saw it, that was making the argument, a similar argument about uh, Martha McSally in Arizona. So mm -hmm. she she's yeah. the Republican who loses the Senate race and then is appointed to John McCain's seat. And so she's serving in, in this in, for two, two years, I guess, until the, next, until the next election. And the argument was that's inherently undemocratic, right? That, that when someone dies, you should have a special election, right? The idea of, uh, of a person just appointing someone to take this democratically elected spot 
for two years is problematic, right? That's that it's, there's problematic again, right? <laughs> that, that, that call it, call it, that it's a democratically elected position. You call a special election, you elect someone. People have the right to have a say in that process. And it's a similar thing here in which people are being appointed to positions that are supposed to have some level of oversight or approval to them. And, and the, the process is being bypassed. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I see that side of it as well. But, uh, but, a, but a President Barker or a President Muck any of us, we would do what he's doing. Mm-hmm. That is a point acting people to get something done. Right. Sure. And, yep. and I, that I, because I'm totally agreeing with you, Phil. Yep. It's, a, it's a scandal that we have put ourselves in a position where government yep. functions. There, if, if, if Donald Trump is not reelected, there's an excellent chance that there are some administrative seats that were never filled yes. for his entire oh, administration. It's, it's guaranteed, yeah. So think yeah. about that. Yep. This is so problematic. Here's my thing I say too often. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> this is wrong. Yes, yes. It's, it's terrible. But part of it is also, I think, his, part of this also goes back, there's a whole other aspect of this, which you're, you're, you're 100% right, Tom, but there's also a weird part about Trump and the Trump administration, which there are a lot of these positions they just don't care to fill. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. I, it goes back to this, like, I, I just, they don't, they don't, they don't they see don't them as important, important roles. Well, or, yeah, it's a bloated government. The government right. the fan. Mm-hmm. I'm inclined to think that's probably true, but I'll just be a devil's advocate. If you know that there's opposition to uh, anybody that you're going to nominate under any circumstances for a particular position, I think what you might say, uh, having been burned many times, is whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's mm-hmm. a little different than I, I, I actively don't care if there's somebody running, I sure. don't know, some sub-agency in, in EPA or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see presidents more frequently doing what Trump is doing, and, and I hope we're all consistent in our rejection yes. of the right. acting role if it's uh, Elizabeth Warren nominating mm-hmm. people and a Republican Senate says we're not going to, uh, or even a Republican sure. minority says, we're going to force cloture on every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Presidents are elected to do this, and we should let them do it. I will say we got to move on, but it bothers me that there's no Secretary of Defense right now. I mean, this is this is a big deal, <laughs> yes. a big big deal, it's a huge deal. Uh, I'm, I'm happy, you know, Bill Barr. I don't always agree with all of his views, but he's a smart guy. He deserves to be Attorney General. I'm glad that that one is at least moving forward. So, all right, we got one last topic. Jumping back to the Supreme Court. Last week, the Supreme Court blocked a Louisiana law on abortion. The vote was five to four, with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the court's four-member liberal wing to form a majority. The court's brief gave no reason, and its action, a temporary stay, did not end the case. There have been a variety of interpretations of this decision. Tom, what should we make of it, if anything, on this decision? And what about Roberts, again, jumping to join, not a lot, but he's done this a couple times now, to join the liberal four justices? This is how it's supposed to work. Uh, what I mean by that is, here are cases that have not had a full appellate record built, that have not let the laboratory of the states work, and five justices said, we're going to come to this question, but we're not doing it now. And, and I'd remind listeners, and, and I, uh, everybody in this room knows this, or everybody in this podcast does, <laughs> <laughs> including the guy on TV across the table, <laughs> one of the reasons Roe is so controversial is the laboratory of the states didn't work. And, and I think what most people say about Roe is um, there are some flaws in the reasoning and that sort of, but, but the second is five years later, whatever you think about abortion, there may have been greater consensus. And here we sit uh, decades later, still uh, of the position that it was a badly written decision rendered too soon without giving the states a chance to work. 
So I think what Robert said here was, I'm not voting one way or the other until I have a full record. Mm -hmm. So I'm prepared to say that Louisiana can't, uh, Louisiana can't implement a, a law that will have a very serious effect and then skip all of the levels of review prior to this one. Um, I, I've said before, I think Roberts is really smart about the ways he's trying to manage uh, the efforts to politicize the court, and I think he just did it here. Mm -hmm. My, Kavanaugh wrote a dissent on this one, right? And from what I understood, a number of people thought his dissent was maybe the more interesting aspect of mm -hmm. this case. Do you can you talk about that a little bit? I don't know if you are if you're familiar with what he wrote. Yeah, I, I haven't read it. No, so I want to be okay. careful and say that. Um, all four of the justices on the other side, I think, take the position that we have got enough on the record to start making judgments about the variety of ways that abortion is advancing. And, and I, I, please don't hear that as a you know, sort of argument for or against. What I'm trying to say is it is clear that some states are working very hard to uh, curtail access to this practice or to change some forms of it. And it's equally clear that some states are moving, Vermont, uh, Vermont and Virginia, we've watched uh, do this, are pushing the, the envelope the other way. And I think what Kavanaugh and, and the others in the four say is, um, when you stay a law, you produce a result. Mm -hmm. And all four of them think that the result is people dying, and, and mm -hmm. that would be their way of putting it, uh, while we wait for years of appellate litigation. Um, again, I haven't read the, the Kavanaugh piece, but my suspicion is what they're saying is what more do we need to know to start making judgments about these cases and I think what Robert says is what more do we need for legitimacy when we make a decision that does this is not a signaling from Roberts that he'll vote with that wing of the court that, on that, the ultimate right. question mm -hmm. that was gonna be my question right. so this is simply like we is. let this play out longer before we actually see where Roberts I is don't gonna think it is I think it's a signal from Roberts that he wants an appellate record well-developed so the court can make a legitimate judgment, which is one of the critiques that has always been made relative to Roe. Too fast, yeah. too soon, uh, and uh, illegitimate in the sense that it didn't reflect uh, the full laboratory of the state's working. Is he the only justice that we don't know where he's going to come down on a final ruling then? Is he the only true swing justice? Do we know where the well, eight of them are? Uh, but, but here's the second dimension. The Louisiana law... Uh, is about admitting privileges at hospitals. <laughs> it is not about the big question of whether or not abortion is a thing protected by the Constitution. So uh, if I had to guess, I think Roberts probably is sympathetic to the four that say uh, late-term elective abortion isn't part of the Roe regime, and it goes well beyond anything that people who have talked about abortion for a long time think is uh, defensible. I don't know that. He hasn't said it. And, and he's really good about managing the, the uh, I'm going to use a word here that I hate, but I, I think it makes sense, the optics of mm -hmm. the way the court manages this case. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, was a, this was a case, I mean, basically about undue burden, right? I mean, it was that mm -hmm. if, if this right. was implemented that I think there's only like three remaining uh, abortion clinics in Louisiana, and they would take it down to one. one yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's an exact if, if duplicate of a Texas law. Right, mm -hmm. exact yeah. duplicate of a Texas law, 
uh, and the only difference was the number of, of uh, uh, clinics that remained. But look, there's a, there's a case about ultrasound bubbling up. And, and at some point, the court is clearly going, I think, to take up the big ticket question, what is an undue burden? Uh, the O'Connor opinion in Planned Parenthood doesn't say exactly what that is. It just says we don't like those and we'll take them on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, this is like everything else the court decides. Can we, can we generate a standard that makes good sense and that decides lots of these kinds of issues? Mm -hmm. But I don't, boy, I, first of all, I don't think Kavanaugh's dissent signals that he's going to vote to overturn Roe. And I don't think Roberts' vote with the other four liberal justices signals that he is pro-choice. I think this is the way the court does its business, and I'm, I'm actually kind of gratified that, that what they're saying here is, let's do this the right way this time, mm -hmm. because maybe we didn't the last. Mm -hmm. To be determined. Then. Not in terms of yeah. outcome, but in terms of process. Yeah. we got to wrap up. This is great, Nick. <laughs> yeah. This is a good one. This is fun. All right. <laughs> um, do the promos. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do all those things, don't I? Um, if you guys... Like the po I don't even care if you like the podcast. I'm assuming you if thought it was informative. If you're still yeah. listening, yeah, if you're angry and listening, fine. Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, uh, P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Um, we're Barstool Politics, so look for our beer reviews on there. Uh, the podcast itself, um, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play Music, Stitcher, most major podcasting platforms. Share us, like us, review us through there. Uh, Predicted. Uh, we are partnered with Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock, uh, stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners, uh, if you know, open up a $20 account, uh, you uh, Predicted will match that $20. Um, so you get $40 in uh, in funds to use on Predicted. Just use our uh, promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash Paul 20 and check it out. Free money, Nick. Lots of fun. Free money is always fun. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Tom. This is great. Oh, my gosh. It's always great. Yeah. Thank you. Always like having you. See you again soon. Um, anything else, guys? I think we're good. Phil? No. I'm, I'm good. Cheers. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers.